Thanks to you at home for joining us this evening. For the past several months, we have watched the far right wing of the Republican Party hold the U.S. economy hostage. Far right Republicans in Congress demanded major concessions from the Biden White House or else they would blow up the pretty fragile U.S. economy. They would tank the stock market and push hundreds of thousands of people onto the unemployment line. So a potential catastrophe of their own making. And now there is a deal on the table to stop that catastrophe from actually coming to pass. Over the weekend, President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy hammered out an agreement to raise the debt ceiling and avoid default. And Republicans, they got some of what they wanted in this deal. It claws back unspent COVID relief funds. It creates new hurdles for some people who are trying to access food assistance and other federal programs. And it cuts funding from the Biden administration's plan to go after rich tax cheats and make them pay the taxes that they owe. But perhaps unsurprisingly, none of that was enough for the far right wing in Congress that demanded the standoff in the very first place. Absolutely and completely unacceptable. Trillions and trillions of dollars in debt for crumbs. If you're out there watching this, every one of my colleagues, be very clear, not one Republican should vote for this deal. It is a bad deal. I thought the last plan wasn't good enough. I had no idea. I had no idea that we would see a plan as ephemeral and as malodorous as this plan. This deal fails, fails completely. And that's why these members and others will be absolutely opposed to the deal, and we will do everything in our power to stop it. Those were members of the House Freedom Caucus today offering their assessments of this deal. Conservatives have not been shy. They have found many ways to emphasize how much they do not approve of this plan. It is ephemeral. It is malodorous. Shortly after the details of the deal were released, Congressman Dan Bishop tweeted the vomit emoji to display his disapproval. That's the vomit emoji right there. Congressman Chip Roy went on Twitter and called it a turd hyphen sandwich, adding an unnecessary hyphen for, I don't know, emphasis. The criticisms were not subtle. These conservative members, people like Scott Perry, Chip Roy, Andy Biggs, none of them are likely to vote for this thing. But apparently a lot of other Republicans may not vote for it either. I think that it will pass with about 80 to 100 Democrat votes and between 140 and 160 Republican votes. I think the coalition opposed to this will be like the squad and the Freedom Caucus. Uh, and it will uh, it will rocket through the Senate after it passes the House. And I think that there is no serious threat to McCarthy's speakership. So that means tens, maybe over 100 Democrats may have to pull this thing over the finish line. To be clear, there is no big list of new Democratic policies in this deal. What Democrats get out of this agreement is a promise not to blow up the American economy on purpose. The preservation of almost all of President Biden's legislative achievements over the past two years and an agreement that Republicans will not get a chance to do this all over again before the next election. Now, OK, given everything that was at stake, that is not nothing. But this is certainly not a wish list of Democratic demands, which is why it is ironic that it is, it is likely to now be Democrats who will have to pass this thing to avert an economic collapse. 
Senator Elizabeth Warren summed up the Democratic predicament in this fashion after an interview with reporters this afternoon. Look, we shouldn't be in this position. The problem we've got is that the Republicans are willing to take hostages and the Democrats are not. We play the grown-ups in the room. And right now, we are in a position where the hostage takers have said they are perfectly willing to blow up the economy, to ruin our good name around the world, to drive up our borrowing costs for decades into the future. And the Democrats are trying to calm them down and give them enough to pacify them. Right now, Republican House members have been huddling for over an hour as the deal has just passed its first procedural hurdle in the Rules Committee. And the question is, what happens next? How many Republicans buck their own leadership for a deal that they forced? And how many Democrats fall in line for a deal they never wanted? Joining us now is Brendan Buck, former advisor to speakers Ryan and Boehner. Also with us is New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg. Um, I must first ask you, Michelle, the irony of this moment that someone like Matt Gates and he is not a majority whip last I checked, but is suggesting that 80 to 100 Democrats may be um, enlisted, if you will, to get a Republican confection across the finish line. Do you think Democrats will get what I see is the credit they are due for being the grown-ups in the room on all of this. You know, I think Democrats have had a messaging conundrum in that if they either beat the drum too hard about how Bi- how Biden kind of made a fairly decent deal in a fairly, you know, kind of difficult situation, then they make it less likely for Republicans to pass the thing. So it seems like they're holding their fire a little bit. I think that the White House and Democrats in general maybe missed an opportunity to message on this earlier in the process when polls were showing that, you know, a majority or that kind of the population was split Split. on whose fault this is. And I think that maybe some Republicans at least understand that if they pull out of this now, if they tank this deal now, that they are, it will be obvious to everybody uh, who did that. But no, I mean, it's look, what Elizabeth Warren said is absolutely true. And there's not really a way to change that unless you replace, you know, a big chunk of the Democratic Party with crazed nihilists, which I think nobody wants to do. I mean, and by the way, it bears mentioning that Elizabeth Warren, even after diagnosing the problem as something created by Republicans, the fact that she doesn't like what's in this is still undecided on this vote, right? A testament right. to I the degree the, that she is right. willing Unless to Unless I put, heard the House Progressive Caucus still ha- was still taking a vote on whether they should, um, on how they should vote on this and if they should vote as a block. And so, you know, the opposition to this thing is coming from the party that negotiated it, right? right. The opposition to this is coming from House Republicans. And I guess the question now is from how many House Republicans? Well, and Brendan, I would turn to you on that question. I, I, we have to first acknowledge the sort of absurdity that Democrats can't even like ask for the credit they are due for fear of turning off the Republicans who might vote for this, right? That is kid glove handling. Like, I mean, it is a deference to the the insanity of the Republican Party, which is just, I think, a, a, a fact of doing business in the current Congress. But it still should be remarked upon, I think. How do you think, I mean, do you think it is a foregone conclusion that McCarthy loses a considerable number of Republicans on this and not just the sort of right flank of his own conference? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a, a pretty sizable chunk that are going to vote no, but that's the reality of the House Republican conference. Anything that is bipartisan um, is going to lose a lot of people. Nobody likes to vote with, with a Democratic president. But I'm glad you actually picked up on this, because I think the greatest trick that Kevin McCarthy has pulled off here is generating so much anger from progressives that it makes it seem like uh, Republicans should be voting for this. When in reality, this is a pretty small deal. And there's been so much time and effort uh, and, frankly, anger directed at this whole process. When you actually look at the substance of the matter, Republicans didn't get a whole lot. The White House certainly didn't get a lot. It's a relatively, it's basically a two-year budget agreement, a two-year budget, which you're going to have to do anyway. The work requirements, uh, yeah, they're going to affect a number of people, but the CBO came out today and actually said more people are going to be on food stamps because of the work requirements. So this is not actually um, a big win for conservatives. That's why they're coming out, but that's the reality of anything that a Democrat touches. Republicans are going to say no. McCarthy is going to lose a lot of votes, but it looks like he's on a, on a path to get the majority of his conference, which is not a small feat for a, a Republican speaker on a debt limit vote. Okay. And I think we can talk about the contours of this deal in a second, but I, I think it is, I, I would hazard to say that I, I, I think we should be careful about saying this is a small deal because the, the catastrophe that was on the horizon, which is by the way, like June 5th is the deadline, the, the, the threatening the full faith and credit of the United States. I mean, that there have already been reper- there will be repercussions for the degree to which we edged to the, the the very the end of the the runway, if you will, right, Michelle? I mean, there are people overseas and in this country that are not really actually worried about whether America can continue to just be fully functional as a democracy, and that is due in no small part to the gamesmanship that the Republican Party wanted to play in Congress. Right. I mean, I was worried. I was quite worried. I mean, I feel a little bit more sanguine after the last couple of days and after today's committee vote. But yes, it seemed like we might be barreling towards an entirely self-inflicted calamity. I do think, though, that Brendan is right, that it's a small deal relevant to the kind of size of the hostage that the Republican Party took, right? I mean, they they were not able to extract major concessions from the Democrats. And he's right, you know, he's right that that's why the far right and not just the far right is angry about this, right? Kevin McCarthy did not get that much out of this kind of entirely self-created standoff. But I mean, I guess I think I, I'm of the mind and I agree it's complicated, right? Because there's this short term analysis of this and then there is a longer term analysis here. And yes, Kevin McCarthy did not get that there was not a Republican wish list that was extracted from these negotiations over a very serious thing. At the same time, a precedent has sort of been right. set. Once again, right, the, the negotiations themselves were the concession. And the fact that Democrats are bailing out Republicans from a catastrophic scenario of their own creation. I, what is, Brendan, what is McCarthy's, what do you think he is walking, if this does pass with, you know, 80 to 100 Democratic votes, 130, I'm not doing the math right, but if it is bipartisan, what is the lesson for McCarthy in all of this? Well, I think it's certainly going to be bipartisan. And the the reality is the honeymoon is over for Kevin McCarthy. Like, I I think we can accept that. Everything that he's done up until this point to be speaker was about this moment. This is the biggest thing that he's going to do his entire first two years as as speaker, get through this moment. The debt limit is the hardest thing that you have to do. He's going to lose a lot of people. He's going to, a lot of those people who voted for him on the floor uh, on the 15th ballot to become speaker said, I trust you. You're never going to let me down are going to feel like they let him down. So everything from here 
later on is going to be harder. But the precedent was set back in 2011 when we had this first standoff with Obama. And this has been tried a few times, and each time the, the returns are smaller and smaller. I don't know if Kevin McCarthy would be able to run this play again and actually get anything out of it. When we did it in 2011, it was a much, much larger scale deal than, than what they're doing now. Um, but there, there are still challenges ahead. But McCarthy can, I think, breathe pretty easy now as Speaker that his place is, is secure going forward because this was the only thing that really mattered for him. Wait, do you think, I mean, there are still calls for, there still, there are as always <laughs> calls for his ouster, but I mean, there is potentially a discharge petition in the wings. There are people who've said, you know what, this, you might get the one vote to get, you might have my one vote to call for your ouster. Do you think that that is a, a viable possibility in the coming weeks? I, I, I've seen one person say that that's on the table. I don't think it's realistic. And a lot of the people who you would look to to say, all right, time to talk about getting rid of the speaker are saying that they don't want to do that. And I think that is testament to the fact of how much goodwill McCarthy has built up to this point. He knew he was going to spend all his political capital on this. So he built up a lot of it. And I think it's left people with a pretty good, um, pretty good feelings about him, good goodwill around him. And that will probably bail him out. I don't think he's in any real trouble. If he is, we'll have a lot to talk about. But I, I don't think that's going to happen. Michelle, what if um, the Biden strategy in all of this, that he is counting on Democrats to get this over the finish line? We know that Hakeem Jeffries was just on the APM hour talking about basically suggesting that Democrats will vote for this in, in sizable numbers. I mean, what do you think the lesson is for the White House after all, if this in fact does pass the House? Well, I think, look, I think that Democrats in general, and there's certainly people who are angry about, I think rightfully angry, especially about the work requirements, which are needlessly punitive towards people who are in real crisis. But in general, given what could have been, there might be recriminations about the fact that um, Biden negotiated in the first place. But I think people are relieved about the deal that he actually negotiated. So there's a sense, I think, you know, Biden's always being underestimated and he actually is a kind of very good deal maker. He does very, very well in these bipartisan negotiations that a lot of people on the outside think are completely futile. And so I think it will restore some measure of confidence in him, you know, at a time when a lot of people are panicked about having someone of his age running for reelection. Do you feel feel like it was the right strategy to say at the outset of these negotiations, I am not going to negotiate over the debt ceiling. You know, it's so difficult because when you are dealing with people, not just willing to take hostages, but to shoot hostages, right? You, on the one hand, yes, in principle, that's the right thing. And in principle, he might be able to try these various workarounds, the 14th Amendment. But, you know, good luck letting, you know, good luck getting this Supreme Court to um, to back him up on that. And so I think that, you know, he's the president of the United States. He has the future, not just of the current United States economy, but the full faith and credit of the United States in his hands. It makes sense to me why he would be less willing to play chicken with that than, you know, some kind of Yahoo's in the House Freedom Caucus. Emphasis on the word Yahoo's. Brendan Buck and Michelle Goldberg, thank you both for joining thank me tonight. You. Really appreciate it. We have a lot this evening, like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, hoping to wrestle some momentum away from Donald Trump before too many more Republicans join the presidential race. Plus, new reporting that Trump's entourage of attorneys may be starting to turn on each other. We'll have more on that coming up next. Why did you leave the former president's legal team? So, as I said at the time, it had nothing to do with the case itself or the client. The real reason is because there are certain individuals that made defending the president much harder than it needed to be.
That was Timothy Parlatori, one of Donald Trump's former lawyers. Mr. Parlatori used to represent Trump in the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation. And since Parlatori left Trump's legal team a few weeks ago, we have known that there was trouble in paradise. But tonight, new reporting shows just how serious that trouble actually is. The Daily Beast is reporting about a meeting last month at Mar-a-Lago where several of Trump's lawyers threatened to leave. Two sources described the meeting to the Daily Beast as, quote, an intervention. The outlet says the lawyers' concerns here were twofold. Number one, Trump is under investigation for so many things that his legal team is massive and these lawyers do not all get along. But more than not getting along, these lawyers are also wondering if one of them could be a snitch. Quote, what's really driving the deepest distrust is the way special counsel Jack Smith's investigators have started turning up the heat on Trump's own lawyers. By our count, at least seven Trump lawyers have either testified to Jack Smith's grand jury or they have met with federal investigators. And it seems like these attorneys are starting to get worried about going down with the ship here. After quitting, Timothy Parlatori went on national television to say that another Trump lawyer, Boris Epstein, had attempted to interfere with Parlatori's search for classified documents at Trump's New Jersey golf club, which is not exactly the picture of everyone rowing in the same direction. And today, The Guardian is out with new reporting about the Trump lawyer who is the liaison between Trump and the DOJ. Evan Corcoran, that lawyer, was in charge of returning the classified documents to the department. Now, Corcoran reportedly told associates that in June of last year, he was waved off searching any room at Mar-a-Lago besides a single storage room. When Mr. Corcoran was looking for classified documents, he was told to check that one room and not to check anywhere else. He was waved off from searching places like Trump's office which is where, of course, months later, the FBI would find the most highly classified documents. This reporting suggests, again, that not everyone is rowing in the same direction here, and it would also seem to buttress a potential obstruction case. A case that, if you read the reporting, already seems pretty strong. So at this point, it certainly seems like a lot of Trump lawyers are effectively saying, not it. And that makes sense. Remember, that last week, the Washington Post and the New York Times reported that a Trump employee turned witness has told special counsel Smith that Trump ordered workers to move boxes back into the storage room right before his lawyer, Evan Corcoran, searched that storage room. And all that happened one day before federal investigators came to collect the documents. So was that Trump trying to mislead his own lawyers? Were some of Trump's lawyers also actively trying to mislead other Trump lawyers? And with so many lawyers testifying in these investigations, will any of them flip to save their own hides? We might not have to wait that long to find out. Bloomberg reported late last week that special counsel Smith is poised to announce criminal charges in this investigation in the days or weeks after Memorial Day, which was yesterday. We have lots to discuss. Joining me now is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama and, of course, co-host of the Sisters in Law podcast. Joyce, thank you so much for being here tonight. I, I, I don't have a law degree, but a lot of people do, and a lot of them are working for Donald Trump and also have testified either to federal investigators or in front of the federal grand jury. I, I, I want to pull up this graphic we have. I think there are seven Trump lawyers by our count 
who have either testified to the, the grand jury that the special counsel has convened or met with uh, the DOJ investigators on this. That seems like an unusually high number to me, Joyce. Does that seem like a lot of lawyers to you? And do you think that the, these lawyers are actually emerging as potential liabilities for Donald Trump? It does seem like an exceptionally high number, Alex. And to give it a little bit of context, DOJ prosecutors are required by policy to be very careful when they're dealing with someone's lawyer, especially when that someone is a target. And I I think it's safe to assume that in this case, people are being extremely rigorous about following those policies. So, for instance, you can't search a lawyer's office without jumping through a lot of hoops. Any sort of contact requires approval at high levels of the department. And what we've seen here repeatedly is a successful effort by prosecutors to pierce the attorney-client privilege with the crime fraud exception, which in essence means that Trump is either conspiring to engage in criminal activities with his lawyers or he is using them. The lawyer may not know what they're being used for, but Trump is, is using their advice to perpetrate criminal conduct. That really adds up to a very unusual sort of situation here. I, I I would, you know, in the same Daily Beast reporting, there is a list of effectively of all the lawyers working on all the cases. And it is kind of a staggering number of attorneys. And first of all, the number of the legal of uh, the number of probes and then the number of lawyers working on those separate probes. I mean, give us a sense from your background on the flip side of this, uh, how unusual it is to be battling so many legal fronts with a, a different uncoordinated group, not uncoordinated, a group of lawyers who are not coordinating their movements necessarily with the other groups and how complicating that would be for a defendant. Well, it's sort of tough for me to do that because I've never um, had a case against a former president who had four separate criminal investigations into his conduct. But I think the best sort of parallel that I can give you would be in a public corruption case or perhaps in a white collar fraud case where there are multiple allegations against a defendant or a group of people. And typically there's a fairly unified command structure among the lawyers. You know, here we know that Everin Corcoran has done a lot of the coordinating with DOJ. And yet it doesn't always appear to be the case that he has the sort of contact with the client that you would expect someone in that role to have. Here's what you need to be able to do as the lawyer. If you're going to be certifying, for instance, that you've turned over all of the classified material or the presidential records material in your client's possession, then you need to be able to ascertain that from the client to a certainty. And you can't be restricted in your movements and and where you search. So this entire notion that perhaps, I mean, this is, I guess, the worst case reading, but boxes were being moved in, in and out of storage areas before Corcoran was permitted to search, and that someone, maybe the president, maybe someone else was going through those folders and, and perhaps removing material so it wouldn't be found. And it was only after that whole level of shenanigans that material was turned over to DOJ. You know, that's not a position you would expect any lawyer in a functional team to be placed in. Well, and now that attorney-client privilege has been pierced between Corcoran and Trump. But I got to ask you on that count, does it matter if Trump was personally directing 
uh, Corcoran in all of this, whether he was waving him off, whether he was, I mean, how much does his direct involvement in all of this matter as you're building the obstruction case? For example, could Walt Nauta have been the person waving uh, Evan Corcoran off, searching the, the office space and saying, just, just search that one room down in the storage area? Does that matter? Yeah. So I think it's unlikely that a lawyer like um, Corcoran would be willing to take that sort of guidance from someone in Walt Nauta's position. This is the president's valet, a former military um, assistant, not the kind of person as a lawyer that you're going to let define the scope of your search. But to the real point of your question, if DOJ has evidence that Trump is directly involved in manipulating um, the concealment of these documents, then DOJ's case, which is already quite good, becomes much stronger. It may open up additional um, sorts of charges or counts that prosecutors may wish to indict. That sort of direct evidence is what you're really hoping for here. It would be the smoking gun. Can I ask you one more question on timing, Joyce, which is we are being told that this uh, potential charging decision would be coming now-ish in the next couple weeks after Memorial Day, which is now passed. What would be the order of operations? What, what would we be looking for next as far as all of that? Alex, I'm pretty sure we had this conversation over the meaning of the word imminent in connection with the Georgia <laughs> prosecution, and we agreed that prosecutors work on it sort of a funky timeline. Um, but the reality is that because this case involves classified material and DOJ will have to work out with the intelligence community and other people with equities precisely what information will be available at evidence as evidence at trial, that process can take a little while, and I would expect um, this very meticulous team of prosecutors to take their time in advance, to dot their I's and cross their T's, to make sure that they know what evidence they will have available and what classified information the intelligence community feels strongly about holding on to. So I would say imminent would be more in terms of weeks or months and not days. But, you know, we're all just guessing here. Yeah. And w would they have to allow Trump to come in? And I mean, in the same way that D.A. Bragg invited the Trump legal team in to make their case, would a similar thing happen here? They can certainly offer him the opportunity to testify in front of the grand jury. His lawyers would be um, out of their minds if they were to let him do that. Testimony in front of a grand jury is under oath. So I think we won't see that happen here. All right. Well, we know what not to look out for. Joyce Vance, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for your wisdom this evening. Thanks, Alex. We have still more to come tonight, including what Donald Trump reportedly wants to do if he wins back the White House. And here's a hint. It involves a witch hunt. But first, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis hits the campaign trail. First stop, Iowa. And he is about to get a lot of company. That's next. If you nominate me as your presidential candidate, set your clock to January 20th, 2025, at high noon on the west side of the Capitol, because I'll have this left hand on the Bible, and I will have that right hand in the air, and I will be sworn in as the 47th president of these United States. No excuses. I will get the job done. 
That was Florida governor and newly minted Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis kicking off his presidential campaign in Iowa tonight, where he hopes to be a credible alternative to Donald Trump. Trump, if you recall, in the past two months has been indicted on 34 counts of falsifying business records to conceal hush money payments and found liable by a jury for defamation and battery. Despite all of that, a majority of Republicans still believe Trump would be their strongest nominee in 2024. According to a new Monmouth University poll, almost half of Republican and Republican-leaning voters think Trump is definitely their strongest candidate to beat President Biden in 2024, while another 18 percent think he is probably their strongest candidate. If you do the math there, that is 63 percent of Republican and Republican-leaning voters who think that Donald Trump is either probably or definitely the strongest Republican candidate for 2024. The Monmouth poll was conducted just as Governor DeSantis geared up to officially announce his candidacy, but it remains to be seen whether his official entry into this race will fend off other potential challengers because so far it hasn't. The ever-expanding field already includes Trump's first U.N. ambassador, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and a handful of other lesser-known conservative personalities. The list goes on, though. The New York Times reports today that allies of former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie have created a super PAC to support Christie in the Republican primary and that he is likely to kick off his campaign in the next two weeks. Over the holiday weekend, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu said he will decide whether or not he's throwing his hat into the ring in the next week or two. Also in the next week or two, according to The Wall Street Journal, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum is expected to announce his candidacy at an event in Fargo a week from tomorrow. And then there is still former Vice President Mike Pence, who said back in April that he will make a decision well before late June, which I guess is now early or mid-June, a decision on whether or not to enter the presidential race. At this point, the 2024 Republican primary is starting to feel very reminiscent of the 2016 Republican primary, which featured 17 major candidates who ended up splitting the vote and handing the nomination to Donald Trump. So there's that. Now, Trump has been extremely clear about what he's planning to do if he ends up back in the Oval Office again. And it is all about revenge. We're going to bring you the details on that coming up. Right now, Speaker Kevin McCarthy is wrapping up a meeting with the House Republican Conference on that bipartisan debt limit deal he brokered with the White House. The bill is headed to the full House for a vote tomorrow after it cleared its first procedural hurdle this evening, passing the House Rules Committee by a vote of seven to six. Punchbowl News reports tonight that going into that Republican conference meeting, Speaker McCarthy got a standing ovation and that he told Republican members, quote, there's nothing in there for Democrats. I've never seen a bill that you can't point to one thing that the other side got. Joining us now is Ryan Nobles, NBC Capitol Hill correspondent. Ryan, thanks for joining me. I know this is an ongoing situation. Is there any sense that Democrats are going to balk at voting for this in large numbers? I guess it would depend on your definition of large numbers, Alex. I I do think that there will be a significant block of Democrats uh, that end up voting no. But if you'll notice, there have been a lot of conservative Republicans that have uh, declared their no votes 
and hardly any, if any, uh, Democrats that have come right out and said no. And I, and I do think that's because there is a degree of loyalty to the White House, and they're judging to see just how many Republican votes Kevin McCarthy can deliver, and then a lot of uh, how much we see Democrat support, uh, you know, rise or fall, will depend a lot on that. The Hakeem Jeffries, who's the, of course, uh, leader of the minority, uh, told us that he believes Kevin McCarthy uh, can deliver as many as 150 votes, and that Democrats will fill in that gap, whatever that may be. So you're only talking about 70 or 80 Democratic votes that would be necessary to get this over the finish line. I think it's going to end up being a lot more than that. But there's no doubt when you have divided government, uh, you have to come up with a compromise piece of legislation. So that means you're going to lose progressive Democrats and you're going to lose conservative Republicans. And that's how it gets over the finish line. And I do end up uh, thinking that's how this is going to turn out. Yeah, I guess I was asking that in part because McCarthy is so gleefully saying there is nothing in there for Democrats and then also <laughs> expecting that large Democrats will vote for something that, you know, a deal that he put in motion. To that end, McCarthy getting a standing ovation reportedly in this House Republican conference. Can you tell me about his standing right now inside the party? You mentioned conservative Republicans who aren't happy with this, but is there any price that he will pay for any of this? You know, Alex, I do think we don't talk about this enough, that these voices that are critical of Kevin McCarthy within the Republican Party uh, they are very loud. Uh, they have the ability to command a microphone. Uh, they do a very good job of getting their message out specifically to the conservative base, but they are not large in numbers. The overwhelming majority of the Republican Party within the House of Representatives is very supportive of Kevin McCarthy. Uh, you know, it played out in a dramatic way during the speaker's contest because it took only a few of them to break away from the conference to deny him uh, that speaker's gavel. Uh, you know, in aggregate, most of the Republican members are supportive of, Repu of Kevin McCarthy. So it's not a surprise that he would go into that room and getting a standing ovation because they do support him. And I do think that that will play itself out with a great deal of specificity during this vote tomorrow. You're going to see most Republicans vote yes on this piece of legislation. Do they all love it? No. But they do understand that a compromise was necessary uh, to prevent the country from defaulting. And the fact that they even got Joe Biden to negotiate at all uh, when his original stance was that there was no negotiation related to a debt ceiling indicates that McCarthy did make uh, some inroads uh, in these conversations. So, you know, McCarthy is not beloved by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but he does have the support and he's been able to cobble this group together. And, you know, 20, 25, maybe 30 people uh, that are very loud on the right and complaining about him do not indicate uh, the overall sense of this conference in any way, shape or form. Ryan Nobles in the center of the action. Thanks for the update, Ryan. Appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. When we come back, we have new reporting about Donald Trump's plans for revenge if it makes, he makes it back into the White House. We're going to talk to someone who has experienced the wrath of Trump firsthand. That's next. Donald Trump currently faces legal peril on multiple fronts, and the strategy he often uses to tackle these issues is not a secret. He makes his enemies the enemies of his followers. He attacks them in public. He tries to ruin their careers. Sometimes he even defames them. That is a Trump playbook, and it has been for years. But now that his legal troubles have piled up considerably, Trump is making his fight against his enemies more explicit.
In new reporting today, Rolling Stone magazine details how Trump is trying to go after the FBI and the Justice Department agents who are currently investigating him. Quote, in recent months, the former president has asked close advisors, including at least one of his personal attorneys, if we know all the names of senior FBI agents and Justice Department personnel who have worked on the federal probes into him. Trump has then privately discussed that should he return to the White House, it is imperative his new Department of Justice quickly and immediately purge the FBI and DOJ's ranks of these officials and agents who've led the Trump-related criminal investigations. During some of the conversations this year, including at Trump's Florida club Mar-a-Lago, some of Trump's close political allies told him they are working on figuring out the identities of the FBI and DOJ staff and forming lists. So the time-tested Trump playbook is operational here in a big way, but some things, at least, are different this time around, like this. The Justice Department is not making it easy for Trump. According to Rolling Stone, the DOJ appears to be stonewalling Trump's allies, who are asking for the names of those hired by the special counsel to investigate Trump. The department is also obscuring the names of the special counsel's lawyers and personnel on official emails, according to a source with direct knowledge of the situation. Joining us now is someone who knows exactly what it is like to be a personal target of Donald Trump, former FBI agent Peter Strzok. Not only was he removed from the special counsel's Russia investigation back in 2017, but he was later fired from the FBI after more than 20 years of service. Peter, it's great seeing you. Thanks for being my guest this evening. There's really no better person to speak with. Does this reporting feel like vindication for you in in your search to find out exactly what happened here, get to the bottom of your firing? Is it proof that Trump has a kill list? Well, Alex, I don't know that I'd call it vindication. It's certainly confirmation that what Trump did in the end of his last uh, administration, he's absolutely going to come back uh, with full vengeance the next time around. I mean, it's hard for me to overstate what an assault on the rule of law this is. It's essentially somebody who is running for president saying, if you dare investigate me, I'm going to fire you. And there is nobody out in America who should, this is something out of a banana republic. There is no person above the law, but clearly this is something that Trump is saying, trying to proactively identify people who are working on investigations related to him and saying years out from his presidency, I'm going to fire these people as soon as I can, if and when I regain power. So it is absolutely something we saw him doing, as you indicated, you know, me, folks like Director Comey, Deputy Director Andy McCabe, other folks who were fired very much saw this in action. And Trump has doubled down saying, yes, I've done it. Like he frequently does. He goes up to the line. When he sees no resistance at that line, he just pushes forward. So I'm deeply worried about what happens in a future Trump administration to all these folks who are working day and night with special counsel Jack Smith and others to try and hold Trump to account for his potentially uh, illegal acts. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably not just about a second Trump term, too. It could just be marching orders for the current Republicans who are running committees in Congress. We know that uh, effectively doing Trump's bidding are Jim Jordan, who is chair of the House Judiciary Committee, is trying to get Alvin Bragg up to the Hill. We know that the House Oversight Committee chair has has decided to um, hold the FBI director Trump's FBI director, Christopher Wray, in contempt of Congress. I mean, there are very real consequences for Trump targeting these folks in real time right now. And I would ask you to be an investigator in the FBI or the DOJ. What is it like working under that pressure 
in that spotlight. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, look, when I was working with special counsel Mueller, we were all very well aware of the statements that were coming out of Trump's mouth, the statements that are coming out of Congress. Did that make anybody afraid to do their job? No. Were investigators and attorneys certainly aware of it? Yes. And Alex, you're absolutely right. This is not just a future potential harm. Not only is Trump threatening these people with their jobs and their livelihood, but more, you know, if you look at what is going on right now, the fact of the matter is threats, physical threats of violence that are coming in to FBI agents, including the names of individuals who took part in the uh, search warrant down at Mar-a-Lago, attacks on FBI facilities, including a field office in the Midwest. This isn't just a future threat of your job. This is a current threat of violence simply based on Trump and those around him trying to identify people, trying to intimidate them and prevent them from doing their job. What does the department need to do to protect investigators and agents? I mean, we know they're masking email addresses. We know that they are uh, refusing to share the names of those who are working on the special counsel's probe. And what else should they be doing to keep folks safe as they do their jobs? Well, I mean, think about what you just said. There, there are people, the Department of Justice, the FBI, the nation's preeminent law enforcement agency, is having to apparently take steps to shield its people from the wrath of a, the current Republican frontrunner for the president of the United States in 2024. I think what there is some question in my mind, at what point this activity, if bona fide, crosses the line into obstruction or in terms of trying to tamper with investigators, intimidate investigators. And so I think there's some question if this in activity goes far enough, whether or not Trump is beginning to encroach in those things which might actually represent violations of law. I mean, I think the what needs to happen right now, the leadership of the FBI and DOJ need to make it very clear internally to the workforce, but I also believe externally to the public that no one in DOJ, no one in the FBI is going to be deterred from doing their jobs by the threats of this uh, former president. Yeah, it's an important message, uh, not just for right now, but for the institutional integrity and the safety of its workforce. Peter Strzok, it's great to talk with you about this. Thanks for making the time tonight. Thanks, Alex. That does it for our show. We will see you again tomorrow.